0: Welcome to Tuesday home time as we move closer to winter and closer to to our annual appeal, the Radiothon. And I'm relying on the regular listeners to do their bit to keep this important radio station on air. Each year it becomes even more important as there is little else out there telling the truth as it is happening. So with that in mind, let's get on with the show. You could be listening on your old and Log Radio, 8.55am, digital or online, either streaming or through the podcast. Do go to 3cr.org.au for the details. Today we learn about Sustain, sowing the seeds of change, a change to building sustainable and healthy food systems with the Executive Director, Dr Nick Rose. The results of the second round of the French presidential elections, a second term for Emmanuel Macron, with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Another setback for Julian Assange, as he fights extradition to the US for exposing their war crimes in the Middle East. I'll be talking to academic and writer Inouye Kampmark, And in the US, peace activist Brian Terrell will be talking about protests against drones, the Nevada desert experience and the war in Ukraine. Looking back to Truman back in 1941, who said then, let them kill as many of their own and theirs as possible. The US policy towards Russia and its neighbours. Has anything changed? But of course we begin with Mr Kevin Healy and this week it was a week,
1: journalist, that when we discovered politics has nothing to do with politics, an absolute truth revealed by no less an expert than big supremo scuttlebutt son aka Scummo, himself, reflecting an annoyance we regularly hear from politicians about those who challenge them. Uh, they're bringing politics into it. Politicians understandably get so upset when people bring politics into politics. It's so grossly unfair. It's most unfair disadvantage is. It can force politicians to justify, or at least attempt to justify, their positions and arguments. Not, not that Scummer had to justify his position or argument when it came to that interest rate increase this week, an interest in which he wished he had no interest, but which conformed to his commitment to keep politics out of politics. Telling us an interest rate rise 18 days before an election has nothing to do with politics, is not political, but reflects the magnificent job he's going Government has done well he personally has done, reflects the strength of the economy. families faced with a mortgage increase enjoying the benefits of that strong economy. So presumably, the years in which interest rates have either fallen or remained stagnant reflected a weak economy. That's what we'd presume, listener, but it's not true, because Scummo and his big economic guru, Josh Frydom Icebergs, and earlier Scummo himself, and Tiny a bit more for the boss's big economic guru, Joe Hackey, the workers, assured low interest rates reflected a strong economy. So I guess the only presumption we can make is that interest rates, high or low, reflect a strong economy. Just because they're there. Anyway, whatever. Those with mortgages are praising Scummo and the team for the strong economy and can't wait. Guess they'll have to pre-poll to cast their grateful vote for the team which brought them the non-political rate rise. Although it obviously has created a few problems for the poor banks. Tuesday night, the news reported they had not adopted the rate increase for loans and mortgages, generous souls, but thankfully they were able to work out the equations overnight, and by morning news, all four had increased their rate identically, the great benefits of competition policy. But the problem still is obviously it's far more difficult to calculate the equation when it comes to them increasing the interest they pay on deposits because they haven't yet worked that one out. They remain at roughly 0% or minus and the, the difficulty in adjusting their systems to pay their depositors an increase must be so distressing for them. Clearly they'll back pay it when they work it out if they can work it out. Displaying his compassionate nature, Scummo pleaded with the banks to give pensioners a fair go. Admirable sentiment, although although it can't be a simple problem to solve, otherwise we'd be sure Scummo, after nine years of caring business class government, would have done something about it himself. Like they promise real wages will increase after the election something they're so concerned about so concerned that figures this week show the stagnant wage problem that it does so concern them has occurred between 2013 and 2022 which, yes, what a coincidence, just happens to coincide with the caring business class party government which is so concerned. Nine years concerned that workers might get a pay rise but only because not getting a pay rise is good for the economy and therefore good for the workers who don't get that pay rise showing what a delicate flower is the economy, the greatest little economic order of them all. So the promise of a pay rise after the election poses serious threats for the economy. And if we have any doubts about that, just ask how old maidiness will cost the workers of the True Bluwasi Industry Profits Group, who worries and ponders day after day, night after night, over the problem of slow wages growth, but just cannot see a solution that does not harm the economy. Poor Innes. On such matters, we commented last week on that stroke of bad luck for Scummo that the day after he used a ream factory as a prop to announce how he would create thousands of jobs, thousands and thousands he hasn't created these past nine years, ream announced it was heading for Vietnam to enjoy the benefits of cheap labour, creating a few more troublous jobs Scummo has to come up with. Well, then he promised hostile-to-workers ships in Fremantle $124 million to build train-killer patrol boats. And again, just a stroke of bad luck that next day the evil Electrical Trade Union why can't these people mind their own business? ETU revealed hostile to workers had been convicted for underpaying 30 Filipino workers, electricians, welders and pipe fitters, paying them under the award rate as little as $11 an hour for a 48-hour week, including Saturdays, with no overtime or penalty rates. To compound the union's evil and disrespect for authority, Acting Secretary Michael Wright claimed... This is outrageous, listener. Claims Scummo has a fondness for posing in high viz, but when it comes to supporting the income and job security of troubler workers or stopping visa exploitation, he is completely missing in action. How cruel. OK, OK, it might have paid for Scummo to brush up on his background checking before opening his mouth, but, but he wants workers to earn more. He says so, he, he just can't work out how. And obviously, poor merchant of death, hostile to workers, would have paid under the award $11 an hour, 48-hour a week, including Saturdays, no overtime or penalty rates, inadvertently, totally inadvertently. The election itself, we, we should check with Scummo to see if the election has anything to do with politics, we we can report back next week on that. Election itself continues to grip the nation with the big issues reflected in the ads flooding our screens. The Caring Business Class Party says it won't be easy with Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi, elbow, and the Socialist Party says Scummo makes too many mistakes. See? The big issues, big ideas for the nation, vision. Which makes it all the more surprising that the undecided party just keeps increasing its vote. Although Scummo did promise that a caring business class government would make it a crime to use or create any item coloured teal. Um, but uh, Scummo, your man Dave Slammer, the Palestinians, is using teal in his material. Uh, yes, poor Dave is colourblind and he forgot to mention he is the Caring Business Class Party candidate. Uh, Yes, yes, poor Dave has a major memory problem. Then why should people vote for him? Because Dave is a brilliant member of my government. And why do you want to ban Teal? It is an ugly, ugly, ugly you that makes the mistake of bringing politics into politics. Well, if that's the case, we can't blame him. And Anthony did use May Day to promise heaps of handouts for housing. So at last, the government will address the massive need for public housing, Elbow. Uh, No, no, we won't want to waste uh, public money on uh, public housing. Our policy will load lots more families with a a mortgage. Uh, Well, that's good, because with internal rates rising and rising and rising, they'll know they are enjoying a strong economy. Uh, which will be a stronger economy under an elbow government. We will give these people a better future. Then Anthony had a scamper to read out his policy on the NDIS, and Scummo and the baying media screamed, this showed he didn't know what he was talking about. Scummo reminding us that he plays it safe when it comes to remembering these things. You can't forget a policy if you haven't got a policy. He looked very pleased with himself. That out of control militant trade union leader Wayne Gatlos protesters of the sorry, the police association, throwing up the question association of why anyone would want to associate with any of them, but that aside, Paul Wayne is so upset at Green Senator Lydia Thorpe for verbally giving it to Wayne's members during a protest against the deportation of twelve detainees, in which she complained about police manhandling and pushing women, including herself. "'An absolute disgrace locking up innocent people,' she yelled. "'Wayne said her behaviour was unacceptable. "'She has no right to object to, you know, like being man and pushed around,' "'he spoke for decent, responsible people. "'Which, which wouldn't have happened if like, these people weren't there, you know, protesting.' Good point. And and Wayne added, no embellishment, sadly our members have become accustomed to being the backdrop for opportunistic acts of grandstanding. Yes, that opportunistic grandstander Lydia Thorpe. Police, he said, he really said this, have no involvement in these issues, just doing their job. Perhaps we should point out to Wayne that if they had no involvement they wouldn't be there. Their job is to be involved on behalf of the system and class they're employed to protect from anti-social elements who support miscreants like no-proper-papers queue-jumping illegal boat people or petty criminals being deported to a country they know stuff all about. So, well done, Wayne. The working-class movement is proud of you. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for its balanced objective coverage of the election. Well, what more would we expect? Exemplified in its headline covering that story, Bant refuses to condemn Vic Senator's shameful act, police cop vile green abuse. No marks for guessing where that story was going, although a tough one. Did Lord Rupert sympathise more with Wayne or Lydia? Leave you to think that one through, listener. Celebrating the mooted U.S. of the UN, of the U.S. of the World Supreme Court, banning of abortion, the state-caring business class party's Bernie Fine Jesus said there should be no exemption for rape victims who fall pregnant. Babies should not be punished for the crimes of their mother or father, he argued with his renowned logic. Not sure that Bernie has twigged, but there aren't too many male rapists who end up pregnant. So the rape victim must be punished for being raped, but then followers of the dear baby Jesus like Bernie know it's a man's world. To to prove the point, the dear baby himself had to be born to a virgin, for the dear baby no woman stayed by having sex. And the incredible thing is Joseph the carpenter believed it, she was knocked up by a Holy Spirit. Finally, the Minister for Fossils, Keith Pony, is being challenged in his erstwhile safe Queensland seat by a former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party state uh, police minister and current mayor over, surprisingly, climate change, if there is such a thing. And one commentator suggested Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle had not visited the electorate, indicating they weren't too worried about it. But on the other hand, we might suggest keeping Barnacle out shows they're very worried about it. Good afternoon.
0: And don't forget Kevin and the crew on City Limits tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 a.m.
2: Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the state of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day ritual, midday Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
0: Sowing the seeds of change, change to building sustainable and healthy food systems, a transition that supports flourishing communities, individuals and ecosystems. These are the basic aims of Sustain, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nick Rose, the Executive Director of SUSTAIN, the Australian Food Network. Nick, a starting point with the beginning of SUSTAIN back in 2016, but the ideas and methodology go back to much earlier than that.
4: The origins of SUSTAIN go back to the what was called the Food Alliance at Deakin University, so that came out of work that VicHealth, Victorian Health Promotion Foundation, had funded focusing on food security and the role of local government in Victoria, looking at the issue of food security. This was back in really the early 2000s. What came out of that was the identification of a need for a network-type organisation or an alliance that really brought together the various initiatives that councils you know across victoria were working on at that time to improve food security for their communities that led to the formation and establishment of the food alliance based at deakin university uh, from 2009 to 2014 then vic health uh, pulled its funding and deakin didn't want to continue uh, independently funding the food alliance so that led to the establishment of Sustain in 2015-2016, hosted by William Anglis Institute of TAFE in the city, which at that time was launching Australia's first dedicated food systems degrees in its Faculty of Higher Education, the Bachelor of Food Studies and Master of Food Systems and Gastronomy, and I have a role at William Anglis teaching in both those programs.
0: Just curious as to why VicHealth Health stopped the funding
4: it was a change of uh, senior leadership and a change of focus at that time and they decided to yeah pull back from looking at more kind of structural and systemic issues to do with you know with health promotion and more on at least in relation to food more kind of micro issues you know salt reduction um, product formulations those kinds of things however in the last few years, really the last sort of three years, I guess, just sort of dating back shortly before the pandemic. And, and since then, there's been another change of leadership at big Health, and they've got right back involved in food systems and have now re-established a food systems team uh, that was very active during the pandemic. Uh, it was called a, a Working Group on Food Security and Food Systems. That group uh, over the last 12 months has been drafting a consensus statement for a fair food system for all Victorians and that is going to be launched at an event at Deakin Uni's Melbourne um, venue on the 10th, Thursday the 10th of June and that will be leading into the Victorian election later this year.
0: I'd imagine there are a lot of areas that need assistance for sustainable food how do you choose the projects that you do support?
4: You're absolutely right, food and agricultural systems is a, a huge area as I'm sure you and your listeners would appreciate so spanning everything from you know agriculture and everything that goes into farming and agricultural systems to supply chain, uh, logistics, food manufacturing and processing to uh, retail systems and marketing and promotion and Consumption and then and then waste um, and all the you know the different impacts along the way. So it's you know it's massive and it's difficult for any one organisation unless it's very well resourced to really work across all of that. So I mean I guess in, in in sustain's case we have seen our role I guess building on you know that that legacy of the the food alliance and and the initial interest of Vic Health as I mentioned uh, wanting to support local government. Uh, We've continued uh, to do that. We facilitated a a local government food systems networking group uh, from 2016-17 that produced a series of uh, papers, uh, sort of policy papers setting out the role of local government on uh, food systems in, in Victoria. That led to uh, my involvement in an Australian Research Council three-year project with uh, researchers from Sydney University and and Wollongong University, which was mapping what every council in Victoria and New South Wales uh, have been doing in in this area, uh, as well as looking at, you know, some examples of leading councils and and community action. Um, So that's created a really, you know, solid body of, of work now and last year we launched a a further iteration of what we're calling a local government food systems networking forum which has 11 Victorian councils as members. We're staff working in local government in Victoria as well as council in New South Wales and and Queensland meeting together once every three months and talking about what they're doing and troubleshooting issues and challenges um, to build their capacity. So that's you know, local government, although it's limited in terms of its resource base, its tax raising capacity and its, you know, power to impact the system in a legislative or regulatory sense is the most responsive to community. Its uh, councillors are, you know, probably politicians who are most accessible to community members, more in touch with what's going on at the local level and, you know, we feel that's been a really positive way to uh, to make some inroads in this area, and there 's been you know some good examples of local governments in you know, around Melbourne and elsewhere you know making some good changes with community members that 's been a, a strong focus, and the other one that i 'll mention, which is drawing on you know my own sort of interest and background in urban food and urban agriculture. At the end of my doctoral research I had the opportunity to be a a research assistant on a federal government funded project looking at the role of urban agriculture in helping to meet climate change and urban food security challenges in the wake of that i applied for a churchill fellowship and was fortunate to be successful in that application and that allowed me to travel to a number of cities in uh, in, in in michigan and wisconsin in the united states and toronto in canada and then five provinces in argentina looking at Dozens of organizations working to address critical food security issues in disadvantaged uh, urban areas as well as create livelihood opportunities um, for members of those communities so uh, I, I was really inspired by that trip and and the whole reason for doing that was that I felt that while there were quite a few community gardens, different places in Australia, you know we were only really scratching. The surface of the potential of uh, growing food in cities, uh, given what was happening globally, we've made that a, a strong focus of what we do. So those those are really our, our two strong focus areas, and what is a you know what is a, a whole system.
0: I suppose when you think about the ethnic background to many people in the suburbs of Australia, that there has been an emphasis on backyard gardens or urban gardens. But with people now, many people moving into apartments and housing flats and all that sort of thing, that skill is lost.
4: Yes, that's a that's a good point, Jan. Is the the way the city and sort of thinking, particularly of Melbourne, of course, um, you know the way the city's you know developed and changed over the decades. You know, going from you know those those backyards and, and suburbia and and people being able to. To grow food either in the backyard or front yard, and and now with uh, you know with more and more apartments uh, going up, and some of the, many of these houses with with backyards coming down, and in their place you know five, six, seven story apartment buildings going up with no or very little outdoor space, you know, and 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 then I guess you combine that with the rise of convenience culture and Uber Eats and and takeaway food and all the rest of it. Yeah, it is, it is very much a challenge. Having said that uh, I think it's really important that we don't lose that skill. Uh, I think it's you know for for so many reasons um, and even as the city's you know changing and developing and we've got all these apartments there's still many many vacant lots around Melbourne that just often sit empty you know for months or years while the developer you know may decide what to do with them and I think uh, there's a huge opportunity there to Make those spaces productive, and some of them could be available for people living in apartments, for example. I think the land is is still there if 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 we can think of it imaginatively and creatively, and I think the need for people to not lose this skill, and and indeed for you know for more people to embrace it is is really strong, uh, particularly at the present time with you know with what we've been through with COVID, with with what's happening with the climate, and now of course with the uh, the war in Eastern Europe and inflation and cost of living crises, um, you know, with all the reports and expectations are that people experiencing food insecurity are going to be increasing in number um, and the way we deal with that currently is with food banks and handing out surplus food from supermarkets, food that's going to be thrown out or, or processed food. And while that, you know, meets an immediate critical need, it's hardly a, you know, a a good, dignified, long-term response. Far better, I would say, to uh, give people in that situation, you know, the the skills and capacity and, and opportunity to uh, start taking care of some of their own needs and in, uh, in being outside and, and, and connecting with others and building social connection and relationship and connection with nature is a much healthier and more dignified way of thinking about food security now and, and going forward.
0: Do you liaison with the councils to facilitate vegetables being grown on verges?
4: Yes, we're, we're, we have, as part of, as I mentioned, the quarterly meeting, the local government food systems networking forum. Staff in that space do talk about the different strategies and programs that they're working on, and and this topic that you mentioned of, uh, of verge gardening and, and access to verges is uh, is one such topic. Um, it's uh, you know it, again, it's a, a bit of a, a challenging one for some councils who are concerned about you know, risks, you know, the the question about insurance and people having accidents or slipping or those kinds of things is sometimes raised, but, you know, we can help councils work through those questions and this is where we would say uh, to, you know, interested community members or community gardeners um, and councils that these risks can be managed and and mitigated and it's, you know, where it's done, Appropriately can be a, a great way of supporting a you know a, a culture of making you know more fresh food uh, available and using you know using that space we have in so many parts of the the city.
0: Similar issues with railway reserves.
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's another. The VicTrack is uh, is a very large uh, landowner, as is Melbourne Water. Some of the uh, you know the other uh, big um, you know utilities. They manage a lot of land and, you know, there's opportunities there for, for interested community members with support to gain access to that land. In fact, uh, Melbourne Water, I should say, had a, and I still have, I believe, a program called Our Space Your Place where uh, they've identified, you know, some parcels of land that are available for, for community purposes, including community food growing purposes. And the same could apply to to railway reserves, this is where I think uh, resourcing comes into it. It's one, it's one thing to look at, you know, the land that's available, and obviously that's that's the, you know, the vital first step to identify that land and and get access to it. But then, you know, often, particularly talking about railway reserves in metropolitan areas, you know, there might be issues of contamination and so on. So, probably wouldn't be appropriate to grow food directly in soil. Uh, you'd need to look at above ground growing and that requires bringing in soil, you know, other infrastructure such as wicking beds. That all costs money. And what we've said is, you know, that shouldn't be up to individual community members or community groups or or local government really to to fund that. Uh, This should be a national priority, you know, to create a fund effectively to support that kind of infrastructure. Uh, So in our pandemic gardening survey, national pandemic gardening survey, which we conducted in June, July 2020, with over 9,000 responses. Out of that, we developed an action agenda to support edible gardening and urban agriculture across Australia. And the the headline demand in in that action agenda was for the creation of a $500 million national edible gardening fund, and a significant part of that money would go towards uh, supporting infrastructure for uh, community uh, food growing uh, across the country.
0: That hasn't happened yet?
4: No it hasn't happened yet. We have you know with with our election scorecard that we've uh, just uh, released uh, we've made that call again and we are you know calling on the next Australian government and also the next state government and in, in Victoria and elsewhere to uh, do a lot more to uh, to resource this, and it'll be something that we'll be pursuing as part of ongoing advocacy efforts, uh, because we're convinced that it's a you know very positive and constructive and, and necessary step for the long-term health and wellbeing of Australians, as well as uh, supporting uh, our environment. So, no, it hasn't happened yet, but uh, you have to make the demand first, and then continue to pursue it.
0: Has sustained worked with? indigenous communities to introduce bush foods? Uh,
4: with colleagues in, in Western Australia uh, we uh, have uh, supported uh, a First Nations organisation called Noongar Land Enterprises which is the Noongar uh, Budja country which covers the uh, Perth and, and southwest of Western Australia. This is a, a First Nations led group of uh, landowners who are Recovering uh, native ecosystems on their properties, and and looking at uh, uh, native agroforestry. Uh, so we um, have watched their development with great interest, and and where we can kind have of have supported them, we have been in discussion with uh, with Bruce Pascoe and and uh, his uh, work with uh, with dark uh, dark emu and and black duck foods, and the uh, you know the reclamation of First Nations bush food food systems heritage in this, uh, in this country and, and Bruce has spoken at a number of our events. Currently we in the uh, development of the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm in Preston as well as the Melbourne Food Hub Farm in, in Alphington. Uh, we're exploring with First Nations groups how, how a, a, a bush foods garden may be incorporated into the design and operation of those places.
0: Can I take you back to your Churchill Fellowship time? What were the main issues or ideas that you came back with, and have you been able to put them into practice?
4: Well, that's exactly the point, Jan. That's um, as, as you may know, that's the point of a Churchill Fellowship is to support Australians to go away and uh, meet people and uh, find out about things that are happening overseas, not happening as much in Australia, that, but that could be of benefit to Australians to you know come back and, and put them into practice. What I saw uh, going to places like Detroit and parts of Chicago and, and parts of Milwaukee and parts of Toronto in particular and that, that part of North America was the way in which degraded, vacant, uh, vandalised, abandoned pieces of land in cities, particularly uh, Detroit, which you might know previously in previous decades was um, a thriving uh, metropolis. Population over 2 million people and at one point the third richest city in the United States and then car industry, um, manufacturing collapsed, uh, the city, uh, really dwindled and declined and its population fell by, I think, almost two thirds, correspondingly very high rates of, uh, of poverty and unemployment. You know, many houses being demolished and, and abandoned. The city in, in recent years has sort of experienced a little bit of a renaissance through people, you know, from Detroit and from other parts of America moving there and uh, setting up urban farms on those uh, abandoned lots. And, and that's something that I saw not just in Detroit but other places I visited as well, you know, creating small businesses for themselves, creating programs for, you know, for youth internships, uh, partnering with local schools, addressing sort of food security needs. That whole Ecosystem, if you like, of uh, using you know using that abandoned or vacant land, making it productive, making it aesthetic, um, you know, running small enterprises, businesses, organisations from it, you know, meeting immediate needs for you know for good, healthy food and and for for jobs and and training opportunities, you know that's a model, uh, you know that, that that is really shaping the strategic direction of sustain. We have received some funding. Uh, from a couple of uh, foundations to investigate uh, that and and develop an actual model and then seek uh, larger uh, funding to put it into practice. So that's what we're, you know, we've been trialling at the Melbourne Food Hub site in Elfington and and also the new site in Preston using, you know, in, in both cases, land that was underutilised, uh, making it productive and then... Uh, looking at opportunities to, you know, to do education and training and, and healthy food production from those sites, and understanding what that could look like as a scalable, replicable model that could be, you know, with with, a, with appropriate funding and partnerships, and access to land could really be expanded in a significant way across Melbourne and and hopefully elsewhere across the country. So. You know, it's been a process, um, but I I have very much remained true to the commitment I made and the vision of the Churchill Trust, and being a Churchill Fellow to take all that those lessons and inspiration, you know, that I garnered when I was uh, when I was overseas in 2014, and, and put it into practice through my work in Sustain. So, it's a journey, it's a process, and it's gaining you know traction and and momentum now. I mean, the other thing. I've mentioned you know, the sites we're working on. I mentioned the Pandemic Gardening Survey. The other thing I've mentioned is the events that we've been running to raise the profile and visibility of uh, growing food in cities and, and even talking about urban agriculture as a concept and as a sector. Uh, so we have been doing that since 2000, since our establishment year in 2016 with the National Urban Agriculture Forums. We've now run three of those with uh, over 100 speakers internationally and and nationally, uh, people involved in this space in in all kinds of ways. And last year for the first time we had a National Urban Agriculture Month as a whole of country self-organised event where there were 112 uh, different events all over uh, Australia with more than 3,000 people participating. And uh we're just uh gearing up to do the same thing again uh in October and November this year. Uh, and that's really about building a movement and, and raising visibility and helping community gardeners and urban farmers across the country to uh strengthen the case for greater, you know, resourcing and, and support and more access to land to expand this sector. So yeah, I'm staying true to the you know the commitment with the Churchill Trust. It does take time but you have to be persistent and, and keep working at it.
0: And of course, the effect of gardening, urban gardening on both physical and mental health of people, particularly when you think about the last two and a half years of COVID, where people have suffered a great deal.
4: Absolutely. You know, that's, uh, that, that was the overwhelming findings of the Pandemic Gardening Survey, where, as I mentioned, uh, 9,140 Australians who were... You know, we're growing food at home during the, uh, you know, the first wave of lockdowns back at that time and you know, reflecting on that experience and talking about what it meant for them overwhelmingly spoke of its, uh, its, its benefits and particularly mental health, uh, particularly, you know, easing anxiety, supporting relaxation, helping people de-stress, being outside, being with plants as well as the you know the you know the physical exercise you know the gentle movement and the you know the dietary benefits from having access to that that fresh food and and also socially even during you know lockdowns and isolation uh, many people spoke about Meeting neighbours for the first time across the fence line, or you know, in the front yard, and having conversations, and you know, people walking by commenting on what they were doing, and so it's a it was a great way of you know building you know social human interactions as well as the you know the individual benefits from uh, from mental from mental health as well, and of course that social element goes very strongly to mental health. It's not spoken about too much, but. Uh, As we've become more atomized as a society over recent decades, uh, you know, there's growing research that talks about the issues of loneliness and and people, you know, being on their own or being socially isolated, you know, well before, you know, the the COVID experience. You know, gardening, particularly, you know, in verges, in front gardens or, you know, community gardens, public spaces is is a a really great way for people to, to make connections and friendships.
0: What's important right at this moment is the election being held on the 21st of May. So would you like to give a, a bit more of the results of your survey that you sent off to the political parties in before the election? What were they telling you that they might or they will do if they win power?
4: Yeah, that's right. So we, we put a series of questions uh, to them on um, wanting... Uh, to know the positions of the political parties on a number of priority areas that really came through from that uh, from that survey work, so community gardens, we wanted to know whether there was a commitment to expand the network of an estimated one thousand plus community gardens, uh, education training, and workforce to improve skills based training and apprenticeships in urban agriculture, community development and food security, uh, expanding um, school edible gardens in public schools. Um, facilitating access to land, supporting research, prohibiting uh, fast food outlets near uh, education and healthcare facilities, and supporting market gardeners and farmers more broadly to transition to regenerative uh, agriculture. So we sent that out to all the three main political parties, the so Coalition, the um, Labor Party um, and the Greens, Didn't hear back from the uh, Labor Party, unfortunately, but um, did hear back from the the coalition, uh, from Greg Hunt and from the the Greens uh, spokesperson. Uh, And so on the basis of that, we developed an election scorecard, I should say. The the coalition uh, was very much uh, focused on um, skills, national competitiveness, improving productivity of the Australian horticulture industry. They did talk a bit about... Educating young Australians about agriculture, um, the Kids to Farm program, you know, iFarms, and then talked a bit about you know the Healthy Food Partnership and, and a national preventative health strategy. The Greens spoke to some of the other issues. Uh, Talked particularly about uh, developing a national food security strategy, which was uh, something we hadn't heard before. Which is definitely, you know, best practice internationally. Canada has got a, a national food policy. The UK has got a national food policy. It's a, a clear absence in Australia. So we were very pleased to uh, see at least one party talking about the need for national coordinated uh, policy and strategy. You know, they talked about, you know, working at the community level, supporting community-level education, cooperatives, uh, community gardens, and so on. So uh, overall, um, we looked at what Coalition had, and, and again, you know, they, they scored well on workforce skills and training, as you, as you might expect, but, but less so on the, uh, the other items. We've made that uh, the results of that scorecard available now through our website and through social media. And we do encourage everyone to think about the importance of the food system to our well-being, uh, to you know, issues across, uh, across society, climate change, uh, biodiversity, as well as human health and well-being. Um, and these are you know, fundamentally important issues that don't get enough air time in election debates. So uh, we've provided some information and resources uh, for people to, uh, to use as they make up their minds in two weeks' time.
0: Surprises? Disappointments?
4: Surprised to see, as I say, a, a reference to um, a national food strategy from, from the Greens. Um, disappointed not to get any response at all from the Labor Party, uh, particularly given that the previous Labor administration of Julia Gillard uh, over 10 years ago now did actually work to create Australia's first national food strategy, which, you know, had many shortcomings, but at least it was an effort at the federal level to have a coordinated approach um, on food and agriculture. So, yeah, disappointed uh, not to see, uh, as far as we could tell, any, any similar thinking uh, in policy terms from the, uh, from the ALP.
0: Plenty of work to do, Nick.
4: Absolutely, Chad, absolutely.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you. And Dr Nick Rose is the Executive Director of Sustain. Do follow them up on Facebook and the web.
5: The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining Northeast Syria Solidarity, or NEWS ness and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. Ness sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nesssolidarity.org.au. NES is a 3CR supporter. Hello, 3CR listeners. I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea you won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. fears
3: are
2: Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes fafiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations, from the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs. All scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours we your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter.
5: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au The
0: French presidential elections results are in and Emmanuel Macron has been re-elected in the second round contest with Marine Le Pen. After the first round, researcher and journalist Nick McLellan wrote that, quote, Macron in the lead as contest for French presidency impacts Pacific, unquote. Asking for this interview, the results are in. Where does that leave the Pacific? The... Re-election
6: of Emmanuel Macron as French president has really confirmed some some trends that have been developing for a while around the Pacific, where, as we talked about previously on the program, over the last five years, Macron has won a lot of support from anti-independence politicians in the Pacific Islands, uh, in New Caledonia, in French Polynesia, in Wallis and Futuna. In the first round of the presidential elections on the 10th of April, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leading left-wing candidate from uh, the Parti La France Insoumise, won a majority in six of the 11 overseas territories, particularly in the Caribbean, in the Atlantic, and, you know, was, was uh, more than 50% vote in some of the Caribbean countries. In contrast, Macron won support in the Pacific. Two core reasons for that were, firstly, that key anti-independence leaders um, backed him, uh, which they hadn't done in 2017, against Marine Le Pen, the extreme-right candidate from Rassemblement National. But technically there was massive abstention, um a very low turnout. Only just over one in three voters in New Caledonia bothered to go to the elections. And part of that was that people were tired with the elections and referenda. They had a lot in New Caledonia. But also there was a clear call for people to abstain from the leading independence parties, a coalition of independence groups, leading parties like Union Caledonienne, uh, Palika, the party of Canuck Liberation and others, just called on their people not to vote, um, saying that this is a matter for Europeans, this is a matter for Europe, and it's got nothing to do with uh, the people of New Caledonia, which they see as uh, you know, part of the Pacific rather than part of Europe.
0: Well, what does it have for the Pacific?
6: It's an interesting time because over the last five years, President Macron has been talking about an Indo-Pacific strategy using the jargon for the uh, Asia-Pacific region that, that's now commonplace amongst uh, strategic think tankers. You know, Macron came to Australia and New Caledonia in May 2018 and at that time signed a, a vision statement uh, together with then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and You know, there's been a strategic partnership between Australia and France, um, started by the Rudd Labor government, but by partisan support from the coalition. And that's expanded through a series of joint statements, building up the uh, uh, France-Australia strategic ties, basically aligned against China. Um, France says that it's not part of the US bloc against China, but that's not true. They really are setting their defence posture in the region, are concerned about rising Chinese influence. But that strategic partnership was blown out of the water, pardon the pun, by the AUKUS decision in September last year, um, and the decision to breach the contract with the French corporation Naval Group, uh, Naval Group, uh, for the submarines that the Australian Defence Force was buying. And that bitterness lingers to this day, you know, although, uh, there are some areas of cooperation, uh, with uh, France, say, around humanitarian disaster response for the volcano in Tonga earlier this year in January. On the bigger geopolitical areas, the French are quite open that they have re-evaluated the strategic partnership with Australia and will only deal bilaterally with Canberra on a case-by-case basis. Famously, President Macron, um, when asked whether he thought um, Prime Minister Morrison had lied to him, said, I don't think, I know. So when you have a a French Prime Minister, saying that Morrison's a liar when you have uh, the government of the Solomon Islands willing to talk with China rather than with Australia when it comes to security, and when you have other Pacific leaders talking about the greatest security threat that they face, which is not China, but climate change, then you realise the failure of Australian diplomacy in this uh, part of the world and the challenge for the incoming government um, after the May elections.
0: 28% of people who were eligible to vote didn't vote. This is larger than the, the first round. How much of that can be sheeted down to the fact that, apart from what you said about the Pacific, that there's no left candidate to vote for?
6: Well, that was very much the case, and you can see uh, maps of you know, where people voted and didn't vote. In New Caledonia and in French Polynesia, some people early on advocated to vote for uh, Mélenchon, uh, the leading uh, uh, left candidate, and his absence was very much there. And, you know, across France, it's repeated in headline after headline, voters being quizzed between the two rounds of the, the election on the 10th of April and the, a fortnight later on the 24th of April. They said that without a left-wing candidate, the choice was between plague and cholera, quote-unquote. <laughs> you know, that was widely said and became a bit of a catch-fry in France and indeed in the Pacific. And you only have to look at the final results of the the election, and they're really striking. The number of registered voters who went to the polls in France was 38.5%. Less than four out of ten, you know, just over a third of voters bothered to turn out to vote. And that was five points down from the 2017 election. So the turnout was lower in France as a whole. And the bold figures are really striking, Macron defeated Le Pen in the second round vote by 58.5% 58, 58. to 41.5%. So a significant victory over Le Pen, about 18, 19 million votes against 13 million. So Le Pen got 13.2 million votes for the whole of France, but 13.6 million people abstained from the election. 13.6 million abstained. Another 3 million people, 8.6% of the electorate, went to the polling booth but then they put in a, a blank or a null vote. So they either left put in nothing in the envelope just stick in the ballot box, or they wrote rude insults all over the ballot paper saying their contempt for, for, for both candidates. So if you add up the abstentions and the null votes, doing some quick maths in my head about twenty two point two million people who abstained or voted blank. Macron got eighteen million. So more people abstained or voted nothing, then Macron won in the election. So you see the, the the gap in concern amongst people about the lack of choice between two right-wing candidates.
0: Well, where does that leave so-called democracy in France?
6: Well, there's another step in democracy in the sense that there are elections coming up uh, very soon for the French National Assembly. In June, there are two rounds for the National Assembly, similar process where a whole slew of candidates run off against each other. And uh, if you get 50%, you're in. But if you don't, there's a runoff between the top two candidates. And so we're going to see this is for French's parliament, uh, lower house parliament, the National Assembly. You're going to see a a runoff. And in this case, uh, Mélenchon has called for a a union of left-wing voters including people who supported smaller Trotskyist parties on the left, who won a couple of percent of votes in the the presidential election, but also people from the Socialist Party, which was obliterated, won less than 2% of the national vote, the French Socialist Party, and they were ruling under President Hollande, Macron's predecessor, not that long ago. So Mélenchon, as the leading left-wing candidate uh, from La France Insoumise, France Unbowed, is mounting a real grassroots campaign to try and keep up the momentum. He did very well in the uh, the, the first uh, round of the elections, although he was eliminated, coming in just behind Marine Le Pen. He got more than 20% of the vote, so one in five voters back to you know, a very progressive left-wing candidacy. I mean, there's questions about some of Mellon policies, but nonetheless, he really mobilised an enormous amount of support, and he's hoped, hoping to carry that momentum from the grassroots campaign which certainly wasn't supported by the mainstream media, into the legislative elections, hoping that a, a union of the left, broadly speaking, would um, give uh, within the National Assembly a much stronger voice to the many people who felt that they didn't have a candidate to vote for in the, um, the presidential election. That's going to be the case, too, for the Pacific. Although leading independence parties um, boycotted the presidential election, it's likely that they will run candidates for the National Assembly. Already, for example, in French Polynesia, in Tahiti, they have three seats in the French National Assembly, and one of them is held by a guy called Moatai Brotherson, who is a member of the pro-independence Tabini Ratira party. Although they call for a boycott of the presidential elections, I think uh, they'll run again for the National Assembly, and Moatai Brotherson provides a voice in Paris uh, for negotiations with the French government. This is probably going to be the case with the Kanak independence movement as well. Once again, they called for a boycott of the second round of the uh, presidential elections, which was followed by the vast majority of their supporters. But uh, they're meeting in Congress in a few weeks' time as the FLNKS, this umbrella body for the independence movement, and I suspect they'll run a couple of candidates to see if they can uh, win uh, a seat in the National Assembly which is a pretty crucial opportunity, therefore, to have someone uh, negotiating with the French government as New Caledonia moves on to further discussions about its political status when the the new government new prime minister are appointed in uh, in Paris.
0: Finally, Nick, I can't let you go without a few more words about China and the Solomons, the hysteria that has accompanied the announcement.
6: Well, it depends a bit where you're looking. I listened to a very interesting uh, webinar. Last week with um, Dewi Fortuna Anwar, who is a senior Indonesian uh, academic, uh, former government official in many administrations, someone who knows Australia well, and and was um, commenting on regional politics in this webinar, and Indonesia's foreign policy. And she had nothing but compliments for Sogavari. She said it was really interesting to see a small microstate uh, play the diplomatic game so well, where you had senior ministers and officials from Australia, from Japan, from the United States, coming to the Solomons and offering to do things around security, around development, around environment, that they hadn't offered for decades. You know, the United States closed its embassy in Honiara in 1993. You know, they are now announced they're going to reopen an embassy in Honiara. You know, just one small example, the Solomons has been campaigning for decades for United States and Japan to address the the explosive legacies of World War II. Um, The Solomons was a major battleground in World War II and the battlefields and oceans are strewn with the wreckage of that major conflict between the United States and a rising Asian power. You know, there's unexploded ordnance, old bombs and things that go off. People get killed every year in the Solomon Islands because of this stuff that's been around for decades and decades. There are ships, sunken ships in the Iron Bottom Sound, that's where the name comes from, leaking oil into the marine environment. And, you know, the forum in 2002, the South Pacific Regional Environment Program, called on the United States and Japan in a regional strategy in 2002 to help clean up this mess. The forum in 2011 had a a regional strategy for unexploded ordnance in PNG, in Solomons, in Kiribati, in Palau and other places, the legacies of World War II. And the major powers have ignored that call for a long, long time. Now, one of the things that uh, Kurt Campbell, the Indo-Pacific Tsar from the United States who visited, is that the U.S. says they're going to do something about unexploded ordnance. So there's plenty of things to criticize about the security deal. I'm personally very critical about the lack of transparency, about the Chinese police being deployed in Solomon Islands. I mean, frankly, I don't think Chinese coppers training people in riot control is a good thing, looking at the way that police have been deployed in Hong Kong, Beijing, and other places. But I think you have to acknowledge that playing the China card, as Sogavari has done, has focused attention on this broader security agenda that Pacific Island countries have been talking about. There's uh, The voices that come from past and present Pacific leaders are very clear that security is not just about state-to-state security and military bases and geopolitical battles between... The U.S. and China. It's about transnational crime, overfishing, damage to the ocean environment. It's about human security around education and health and ending the plague of violence against women in the community, in the home, in the workplace. But most importantly, it's about environmental security and obviously about climate change. And statement after statement after statement from Pacific leaders, Pacific churches, Pacific community groups is that climate change is the greatest security threat to the well-being, the livelihoods, the security of Pacific peoples. And how many times do they have to say it before major donors, including Australia, put the resources into not just the state-to-state security questions, which are very real and serious, given rising Chinese influence, but the broader security agenda that Pacific countries are. And, you know, just um, last week, the Pacific Elder's Voice, a group of retired presidents and prime ministers, senior officials, including former Pacific Forum Secretary General Dame Meg Taylor, Hilda Heine, the former president of the Marshall Islands, Anote Tong, former president of Kiribati, and Awisopawanga from Tuvalu, a whole slew of leaders put out a statement saying, We're worried that the focus on US China strategic competition is ignoring our core security concerns and that Allies like the United States, Japan and Australia, and I'm quoting this, are framing their Indo-Pacific policies without consulting with Pacific Island leaders. So yes, China is a big issue in the Pacific, as it is a big issue in Australia, and indeed around the world. It's a major economic and potentially military power. But let's not forget the broader security agenda that needs resources around development, around climate. And, you know, this government has failed miserably. (laughs) We don't have to talk about the failure of the Morrison government's climate policy, the capture of policy making by the fossil fuel industry in Australia. We don't have to talk about the cuts in aid under successive coalition governments, starting with a billion dollars cut by Tony Abbott in 2014. We don't have to talk about the destruction of our international broadcasting into the region, the cutting off of the shortwave broadcasts, which now China's picked up. We've talked about these things many times on the program, and it's surprising that the Canberra Press Pack has finally realised that Australia is surrounded by small island developing states. We always will be, and we need to engage better, smarter, with honesty with our neighbours. Both parties have failed in this.
0: Great to talk to you, Nick.
6: Thank you, as always, Jan. Look forward to speaking again.
0: And we shall. In that of course was researcher and journalist Nick McClellan.
3: Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? You'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. channel 31 do you have a favorite program you just can't miss or even a favorite channel 31 personality if you love your local
4: community tv station well there is a way you can help
3: head along to c31.org.au and click the big old donate button your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air making more of the quality tv you know and love plus You'll help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians.
4: That's c31.org.au.
3: And click on the big donate button.
4: Thank you.
5: A 3CR supporter.
0: A British judge recently approved formally the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States to face spying charges. The case will now go to the British Home Secretary for decision and the WikiLeaks founder still has legal avenues of appeal. The order which brings extradition closer comes after the UK Supreme Court last month refused to sign permission to appeal against a lower court ruling that he could be extradited. Extradited to a country that conspired to kill him. After three years in notorious security prison Belmarsh, Julian is in failing health and facing life in prison in the notorious Supermax Prison in the US, a prison that has been internationally condemned for its cruel and inhumane treatment of detainees. I am speaking with Benoi Campmart, who lectures at RMIT University and contributes to a number of publications focusing on current events. Benoit, when talking about the apparent treatment of Julian, we should always detail what he exposed about the US war on terror and surmise that if the exposures had been on the deeds of an enemy, he would have been praised to the heavens.
7: Well, yes, indeed. Of course, one of the critical issues uh, that he's facing uh, these 18 charges, and you know, 17 of which are based on the U.S. Espionage Act, is uh, primarily because of material that was published, national security material, in the context of exposing war crimes, atrocities, um, misconduct, uh, a number of things. Um, and the United States, of course, has made it clear that uh, having done so, requires him to answer in a way that has never been done before, charges based on the SPNR Act that are directed against a non-US national who was publishing outside the United States, and during the course of this activity, he's meant to account for these things. So the, the scene is a very sinister one, and um, it has already done a huge amount of damage to uh, the rule of law concepts of that, and uh, it's just proceeding uh, at pace as to what's going to happen next.
0: Yes, you said it's never been done before, but it's being done now. Why? Why is it so important for the US to act it's, at this time?
7: Well, it's been made very clear in the United States that uh, precisely because it wasn't done before, it was actually discouraged during the Obama administration that uh, this is the sort of thing that should not be done because it brings too many uh, risky considerations into play, not least of all that by revealing things that have been leaked or disclosed to a publisher. One is doing, of course, the sorts of things that, say, the New York Times does, any sort of established newspaper or press outlet. And so the idea, of course, is to try to say that uh, Assange is engaging in things that other journalists do. But what the U.S. has done specifically is to try to delegitimize the pursuits of WikiLeaks and specifically of Assange by suggesting that they're not going after journalists. They're going after specifically this man because he's supposedly not a journalist. It's very important to note that the tactics they use are very much based on narrowing the focus of the prosecution. They intend to argue, for example, um, should it go to trial in the United States, that he actually revealed the identities of informants. And there's a, a long story about the way that was done, but say, it wasn't actually as Assange himself who revealed the identities of individuals, and it was actually... He told the State Department that the particular password to the State Department files that were eventually published were already released by Guardian journalists in a publication WikiLeaks. So it's all very sort of convoluted and murky, but it demonstrates, again, how desperate they are to make an example of Assange and to make sure others do not do this, because it, not only was it a colossal embarrassment to them, it was also, of course, very revealing about the way the U.S. Imperium, if you like, operates in foreign theatres.
0: And, of course, there's no punishment for the the media outlets who actually published what Julian passed on.
7: Yeah, exactly. And what is interesting about it, and, and just to give you an example, if you like, almost venally so this has been against him by the Department of Justice in the United States, is that, the publication that actually released all the files prior to WikiLeaks doing so was actually Cryptome, you know, which is also another outlet that publishes classified material. The editor of Cryptome and those associated with Cryptome have been left alone. They have been left untouched. And this was t- there was testimony, so actually, in the Hill Daily and the uh, extradition trial last year, showing that Cryptome and, as you say, other publications were simply left alone. They have had materials with Cablegate, the uh, incident where 250,000 plus uh, US uh, cables, State Department cables were released on the net. It's very clear that they desperately want to go for the sign, and those are uh, the, the case.
0: We need to focus on the role of the British legal system in what's happened so far.
7: The legal system has demonstrated again, you know, for having a glorious record of miscarriages of justice over the years. You name it in the course of, uh, you know, the, the the war, of course, or the the battles and the various things against the IRA, the wrongful convictions of individuals through the course of British justice, and you can just see the way that Assange has been treated, that he's being you know, Given the same sort of thing that has been accorded others in the British legal system, the fact that he's kept in Belmarsh maximum security prison says a lot. It says that an individual like that is to be given the full treatment, given people who have uh, serial killers, uh, individuals who have committed very serious crimes, and the fact that Assange is being put in the same context, of that, that is very telling. The way that he's been... Refused access of points uh, the, to lawyers on a regular basis to conduct his trial. The fact that he's had incessant visits from his family and of course some of this was put down to COVID, COVID shutdowns and restrictions but it just demonstrated the fact that they have really had it in for him and that made it particularly difficult for him to mount his case.
0: Even though the the UN Rapporteur against torture had come out very publicly Recent, not even yes. recently, is it, and expose what they've done to him.
7: Yes, Niels Meltzer, who, who over the years, you know, the rapporteur uh, examining um, torture and detention, arbitrary detention and so on, he has been very, uh, very much an advocate for Assange and has made it very clear uh, that uh, he regards Assange as, uh, not, not just at the time in Belmarsh, of course, uh, and his treatment there, but also the time in the Ecuadorian embassy as a stint of... Uh, mm-hmm. Arbitrary detention and torture, you know, in terms of his treatment. So, so Niels Milsner has made it very clear that this is the problem. You know, he has been ganged up on by several powers. You know, he has very harsh words about the, the British uh, legal system, but also uh, various British politicians and the way they've treated Assange. Also Sweden, of course, you know, we can't because there's a Swedish connection there with charges against him that have been dropped uh, on sexual assault and also, of course, the United States. So he's observed over the course of time a real, you know, ganging up on Assange and his treatment, and something that um, just just goes to demonstrate how dire the situation is.
0: Well, Jeremy Corbyn has urged the British Home Secretary to stand up for justice. Are there many others in the Parliament in Britain who are also supporting Julian? Or are they silent?
7: There, yeah, there are a handful of politicians, uh, and certainly the more, if you like, the, the more left-oriented uh, Labour Party members around Corbyn yeah. have uh, stated that you know, they certainly are in agreement with him about this. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, there, there is a, a general sort of reluctance uh, in the UK Parliament about openly expressing uh, views on this, uh, because ultimately the... You know, there's a concern, even though I think it's a factuous one, that somehow the case is ongoing, so it's the, they don't want to prejudice it. Uh, they want to let uh, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, uh, make a decision. But uh, rest assured that uh, its um, I certainly don't hold that much confidence there, because Patel is on record over several months now. She's been very keen to push reforms to, on the, to the Official Secrets Act, and the Official Secrets Act is, according to her, needs to be modernized and reformed to enable the state, so to enable um, the United Kingdom to prosecute journalists and individuals who receive national security information. So what she wants to do is to implement something along the lines of the Espionage Act in the United States. So that doesn't all go well. That simply doesn't all go well in this context. We've got a Home Secretary who you... You just imagine it's going to be a formality for her to simply, you know, tick the boxes and say that a son can be, you know, deported to the United States or extradited to the United States.
0: Well, where does the UK obligation not to send any person to a place where their life or safety is at risk? Can they just ignore that completely or are there legal challenges to that? There are.
7: Yeah, there are international. There is, of course, there is the... The extant body of international law, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ongoing, of course, the European Charter, which the UK is still part of, even though, of course, despite Brexit, there are still these residual obligations that linger. And, of course, there's also the US-UK treaty itself, the extradition treaty, which uh, has certain safeguards and so on. But, unfortunately... What has happened here and what has been previously done is that the United States has given assurances that, for example, he will not face the death penalty, that he will not face these appalling special administrative measures, uh, which essentially mean he's kept in isolation and and not able to see evidence that's being adduced against him, and not able to see a legal team, not able to see family. And also he's been given an assurance, supposedly, that uh, were he to be convicted, he will not spend time in the notorious ADX Florence facility, which has been said to be essentially, you know, the United States version of Guantanamo on the mainland. Not only that, he's been given assurances apparently that he might be able to apply to seek serving the balance of his term in Australia, subject to approval of the Department of Justice in the United States. What is so tragic about this is that the English courts took this for face value and, ex- and said that he is not in danger. That the, notwithstanding the fact that the U.S. prosecutors decided to wait till the appeal stage to give these assurances, the British uh, judges, the, both in the High Court and then in the Supreme Court, have more or less said that these assurances are perfectly legitimate, there's no reason why we should question what the U.S. government is doing. And I find it extraordinary. This coming from, and this is what the judges refuse to look at, they refuse to look at the evidence that the CIA has discussed the possibility of abducting Assange, uh, the possibility of poisoning him, the possibility of using British assets to target him. I mean, it's extraordinary. So we are essentially left to rely on the assurances of a government that has thought at stages of getting rid of Assange.
0: And then there's the role or the non-role of the Australian government, who, and I'd say that Julian's last in a long line of people who have not been supported by our government.
7: The Australian government has distinguished itself over the years by a total lack of absence in nationals. Bar the occasional idiosyncratic or, you know, aberration, such as, uh, for example, Kylie Gilbert Moore, and things like that. It's very strange. That particular intervention was a very odd one uh, in terms of pulling out um, you know, uh, diplomatic, uh, if you like, assets in terms of Thailand, trying to seek uh, her release mm-hmm. through channels you know, in Iran by then asking the Thais, the Thai, the Thai authorities, to release Iranian nationals that have been convicted from terrorism charges. Apart from that, Apart from that smelly case, I call it, generally speaking, Australian governments don't care very much about their nationals, especially in the Assange case. It's been shown time and time again that the consular assistance has been minimal and that attempts to seek a constructive involvement by the Australian government has been also minimal as well. So that can be added, of course, a string of other individuals, as you yourself have pointed out, where interest has not been shown. The treatment of David Hicks, for example, the treatment of Mamdoub Habib, during the so-called the years of the war on terror. The treatment by Australian governments has been atrocious you know, at, at points, just allowing other countries essentially to take over the jailing duties, as it were.
0: Where can it go from here?
7: Well, at this point, what happens or what is happening is that the defense team is uh, um, compiling uh, its response, it's uh, making submissions which they are sending to Priti Patel, Uh, the Home Secretary in the UK, in the hope that uh, she will be convinced. Uh, As I said, I'm certainly not holding up much hope about that, but they are nonetheless making the point. There is also a slim chance that there might be an administrative appeal against her decision in terms of due process clause and in terms of whether she has considered all the evidence of the case or not. They may be able to appeal her decision to the High Court, And then there is also the possibility of reopening an appeal to the original magistrate's decision against actually sending him, uh, actually against his extradition. Because if you remember, if your listeners remember, the original January 4th decision that was handed down last year, that was handed down was based on the idea that it would be offensive, uh, it would be actually dangerous and oppressive rather to extradite into the U.S. on health grounds uh, as a risk of suicide. But what uh, Vanessa Bereitza did not do was take seriously the defense of journalism and public interest journalism grounds. So she totally ignored that and actually considered the defense aspect of this shoddy and didn't actually take it seriously. At all. She doesn't see Assange as a journalist. But what she did do was accept the medical grounds. So maybe the defense team will revisit other grounds of her judgment and say that this is a very serious case of an assault on journalistic freedom. And if that can be made, then maybe the procedure will be dragged on further. But that's, at this point, um, the deadline, I think, is May 17th, to make final submissions by the defense team. And we'll have to see how it goes from there.
0: Can we be critical of the, the legal profession, in other aspects, I'm not talking about Julian's support team, but the fact that they haven't come out strongly to support him.
7: The law is a strange beast, and of course legal professionals operated, uh, operate within it, try to operate within this constraint or set of laws and, and principles that they believe are applied evenly and fairly. But unfortunately, the British legal system, and in this case, you know, there's been too much faith shown in the empty promises made in power politics. I think the problem I've seen over the years with the way the Assange case has been treated is that you cannot treat this case as a standard legal case. It is a power politics case. It's a case of many interests involved, many people who are very unhappy with what he did You know, in terms of upending the cart of secrecy in international diplomacy, uh, in terms of mis- and really bad behavior in the international scene. So in doing that, you have to see it as a political case. And in this sense, I've found some of the legal reasons and the legal profession extraordinarily naive, if not ill actuated as well, by in a poor motive as well, uh, in terms of how it is, and I've seen it in black-letter law terms. You can't see this in pure black-letter law terms, you have to see this as having the, the interests of power at stake that really want to see him done away with. And that's no, no surprise. It was proven that that was the case by those who thought that abducting or poisoning might be a good idea.
0: You can only wonder at the, the strength of Julian who survived all these years and still hanging in there to gain his freedom.
7: Yes, he, he has had an enormous uh, wealth. Of strength and stamina, there's no question about it. But I remember having met him when I went to see him in night. There's no doubt, I'm sure, that even though I haven't had a chance to speak to him for a very long time, I'm sure that uh, he had his spirits and and his belief. And and of course, we know he was recently married, and that no doubt emboldened him and gave him some strength. But uh, there is no question about it. He has frail health. Um, You know, he is a, a person facing enormous challenges. Uh, but he does believe with, in what he's doing. I suppose he believes, if you, you know, not to maybe be too trite about it, but he does believe in his own history, if you like. And for that reason, we have to also see and appreciate that uh, this is a very significant figure who, who knows his role as to what he's performing.
0: Thank you for today. And I'm sure we'll hear more from the camp mark on the program in future weeks.
2: Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day ritual, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus, as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public health care. Its contempt... For an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots, and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America.
5: You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
3: A proud black man.
5: A proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit. First Nations Issues, Families, People and Stories from a First Nations Perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man,
1: proud black man, you should not wonder.
0: It's been a while since I last spoke with peace and anti-war activist Brian Terrell at his home in rural Iowa, US. We began by talking about the recent protest against drone warfare at Whiteman Air Force Base, one of many US sites for drone operations, a place he's been there for many years, beginning in 2012. Brian wrote a reflection on the base and its role in drone warfare and I asked him about that reflection.
8: There's a group in Kansas City that that has been protesting there for many, many years. In fact, uh, Whiteman used to be the center for the intercontinental ballistic missiles that were all over Missouri, and uh, now they're all in, in uh, the Dakotas and Colorado, but they were all over Missouri. I think there were hundreds of these missile silos ready to take off in a minute's notice, and the control was all out of out of Whiteman Air Force Base. Well, I've been going there for protests ever since the early 80s, but, but Whiteman is now... Um, There's a couple things going on. For one thing, it's the center for the the whole fleet of the B-2 bomber, the stealth bomber. On the base, they're keeping 136 nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs, ready to be dropped at a moment's notice. 509th bomber wing is based there. Their motto is execute nuclear operations and global strike anytime, anywhere. I'm I'm not... uh, Reassured by that. I'm not that's not comforting, uh, especially today. But also, there, there's the uh 20 attack squadron, which is a smaller unit that has the technicians and pilots and the other people involved in the MQ Reaper drone. So, th- those drones could be just about anywhere in the world, they're, pr- they're probably in flying over Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen, we know for some, but but Somalia other places. There's a real irony to this because 20 years ago, October 2001, just over 20 years ago, when the U.S. began its war in Afghanistan, it was the B-2 bombers from Whiteman were the first, you know, dropped the first bombs that set off that war. bombs exploded over Kabul, supposedly in retaliation for the the 9-11 attack on New York and Washington just a few weeks before that. If you can read about it on their website, it really is was a, a grueling event. It was bad for people on the ground, much more so. But for, in order for the Air Force members from Whiteman Air Force Base to bomb Kabul then, these were the longest bombing runs in history, more than 44 hours. Uh, and they had to have several crews on board each plane to, to, to spell each other, and they got tired. And uh, multiple refuelings in the air, so all this effort being made. Those bombers are waiting for the order to deliver nuclear weapons anywhere, anytime. But day by day, every day, these Reaper drones are, are flying. And the pilots now are bombing Afghanistan. They don't even leave the base. They go home to their spouses and children and their hobbies. They go home and mow the lawn. They they sleep in their own beds, and you know they they work shifts of sitting in front of a computer screen, just like people uh, all over the world do in all kinds of industries and businesses. Uh, and on one hand, it's not any different, but on the other hand, they are actually engaged in combat, and they are um, actually closer than the bomber crews because the bomber crews, of course, were thousands of feet in the air, and they they couldn't hear or see anything on the ground. They dropped their bombs, and the the, the suffering was far, far below, and they don't see it or hear it, or they don't experience it. They have no concept of what goes on on the ground, but these drones travel very, very slow, and they have, you know, very uh, high-resolution cameras. They watch things on the ground. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Nevada. I worked with, with the Nevada Desert Experience and they, uh, founded to protest nuclear weapons at the nuclear test site outside of Las Vegas. But halfway between Las, Las Vegas and the test site is a, uh, Creech Air Force Base, which is the really the, the center for the U.S. Air Force and the CIA drone program. Um, it's the biggest drone base, uh, in the world and, while I was out there, it was announced, uh, the, the New York Times had an article about a young Air Force captain who took his own life. His father explained that he couldn't live with the violations of his own moral compass. Watching people, you know, seeing the, the people who he targets, to, you know, to actually see them dismembered and to, to, to see their family members grieve and sometimes be ordered to, uh, on one occasion, you know, he was not supposed to talk about what he was doing, but he confessed to his father he had was ordered to attack uh, the funeral of somebody that he had killed. So, so, so it's it's not simple and clean. It's you know, the, the the idea that there can be a war on the other side of the world and our soldiers can fight it and not break out of sweat and be safe is just not true. The, the, the moral damage and the psychic damage of, of this kind of warfare is is really, really great.
0: And I'd imagine, Brian, that he isn't the only one who's suicided. No,
8: no, and it's very difficult to get the you get all the statistics. But it's, there are several uh, the drone operators who have come forward and talked about the the, the things that they've seen and the, the stresses that they're under. I think you know, one of the things with the technology, with both the nuclear weapons and the drones, and I, my my work in Missouri, and that's just a little over two hours away from where I live, and then in in Nevada as well. Both of these places, the nuclear weapons and the drones come together, and it's this idea that you can have a high-tech war that's somehow cleaner and easier. You know, it's it's very enticing. It's very popular for politicians to be able to have a war where there's no visible body bags coming back. But it's a, a, an absolute lie. It's 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 actually the the more high tech and the cleaner it looks, the the more barbaric it really it really is.
0: And the trauma for the people on the ground, knowing that there's something up in the sky watching them all the time. You know, I've been to to, to Afghanistan several times over the last decade, and I've seen the,
8: you know talk to people coming from the you know from the countryside. Terrorized by this, people leaving uh, beautiful, beautiful places in the uh, most beautiful places in the world in the, the, in the, in the, in the uh, provinces of Afghanistan, you know, for the squalor of one of the most crowded slums in the, in the world, one of the, um, you know, because of the fear of both the drones and the Taliban, which really are go hand in hand. And see, we know this. Also, I was out at Whiteman. I, I read a quote from. Stanley McChrystal, who was under President Obama, was the uh, head of, of the NATO and U.S. forces, the U.S. Army general. And he said to, to Rolling Stone magazine, I think 2013, I believe, that the American people don't realize that for each person killed by the drones, 10 new enemies are, are created for, for the United States. He was fired for saying that. You know the you know the terrible war going on in 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 Ukraine of supplying Ukrainian forces with these drones, and I'm thinking, you know, lucky Ukrainians, poor, sad situation. You know, the it, 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 math won't work out any different for them. They'll be creating more enemies, ten times as many enemies as as they might be able to kill, and. They will be, the Indian forces will be, be who are flying these drones, will be suffering from, you know, the same moral injury and post-traumatic stress. N- not an answer to a bad situation. It can only make things worse.
0: Talk a bit more about Ukraine in a little while, but I want to go back to the Nevada desert experience that you mentioned a moment ago. You've just been employed part-time as an outreach coordinator. Tell us more about the aims and objectives of the Nevada Desert Experience and what's its what's its general history?
8: The Nevada Desert Experience is uh, 40 years old this year and uh, it grew out of Catholic uh, Franciscan friars and nuns and also Catholic workers. And it is a nuclear test site, a place where, where for years there, there were above ground and below ground nuclear tests and now there are subcritical critical tests and all kinds of other things going on there is 70 miles outside of Las Vegas on land that was just really stolen from the Western Shoshone nation, had the United States just simply took it in the, at the end of World War II. And it's the place where more, the place on earth where there's been more atomic explosions than anywhere its Catholic roots, it still is very much a faith-based spiritual movement, uh, but we have you know, very much leadership from the traditional Western Shoshone. Uh, along the way, the place where we camp and get a lot of sustenance, both material and spiritual, is the, the, the uh, place called the uh, Temple of Goddess Spirituality, a temple to the Egyptian god Sekhmet. Uh, very often we've had um, up to 20 Buddhist monks from Japan. We almost always have Buddhists with us. And in, in the last years, one thing that we've done, uh, and I've been associated with NDE in various ways for many, many years, but I'm I now have this uh, happy to have this job with them. And we didn't have it the last two springs. Uh, we, for, for many years on uh, Holy Week, the week before Easter, NDE has had a walk starting in Las Vegas and walking out to the nuclear test site. It's almost all desert on the way um, to about 70 miles. Really about the only things in between Las Vegas and the test site is first a very large state prison and then there's White or men- then there is a Peach Air Force Base in the small town of, of Indian Springs. And this is where the, uh, the drones are flown and where the training is. 2009 was the first time that there was any protest anywhere. That we know on to these drones and that was just after President Obama was elected and at the time it was not such a big part of U.S. military and foreign policy, these drones. But, uh, because of the proximity, it just, you know, caught, caught, you know, caught the attention and got to be, uh, as the years went by, got to be a, a very, uh, you know, important part of the work. Nevada desert is a very, very beautiful place and it's really poisoned by by both of these entities, the, the, the test site and Creech. When I read about Captain who killed himself, uh, Kevin Larson, 32 years old, he, he was faced with military discipline. He, he might have he was afraid of going to prison. His marriage was destroyed by this. And of course, it has for many people. And uh, But he, he, he was being uh, court-martialed for the use of hallucinatory drugs, you know, because he was a not a combat veteran, there there was no psychological evaluation or anything. He didn't have the help that he might have had if he was actually in uh, you, know, you know fighting overseas or flying in a plane someplace else. But because he's a uh, was you know just sitting in a in an office in outside of Las Vegas, he didn't get the help that he would have had if he been a combat veteran. So he's self-medicating. As many do but the the isolation of these young men and women different from the military uh and one of the groups that we work with both uh that i you know both when i was in nevada and then here in, in um in missouri veterans for peace is, is a group we work with a lot and we've always have veterans with us and always need to, to hear their voices but the experience of these drone operators is is very very different because they are in isolation they will be in a room or a trailer or sometimes an, even in packing crates out in the desert with two other people but they're sitting at com- each staring at their own computer screen and the one thing that, that really struck me and that's what I was reading about the the the, the isolation of this young captain Larson, they're, unlike other soldiers who are experiencing things together, they're just alone for their 8 hour or 12 hour shift. But the thing that struck me in Creech Air Force Base is 40 miles from Las Vegas and the, uh, this base has no housing for the military personnel and their families attached there. So everybody gets an allowance and lives in Las Vegas. So every morning and evening, there's so many people working there and training there, and the cars one after another, and almost every single one going in and out has only one, only the driver. And because of the security, it takes the, the, the long time to get in and out of that of that base. It's probably people are probably in their car alone morning and evening for more than an hour. Uh, and you think that these young people, that they would make friends and they would they would carpool, they would <laughs> that would be the kind of the natural thing. But but I my my, my heart just breaks to think about each of these each of these young men and women who are bearing the burden of the things that they're doing and the things that they're seeing in isolation. There's no buddies, there's no uh, camaraderie uh, involved in this. And so that I think this is one reason why that. Yeah, this has been so hard. When it out, there was nothing new because for for those of us who've been activists in the drone issue, because you know we've met with drone operators and we've talked to them and we've read reports and things have been leaked. There's a young man named Daniel Hale who's presently doing 45 months in prison because he he was a um, intelligence contractor and he a lot of what we know about drones is because he told the american people what's going on he's paying for it for years in prison we know this and within our own peace movement our newsletters and websites and we we write blogs and things but the the fact that this got in the new york times so you know the the, the united states it's the you know newspaper of record Something's real when it's in the Times. That's what people think anyway. There's a lot of <laughs> the Times publishes some pretty shady things too. But, but I think this time it's you know something that has broken into the public awareness. should have happened a long time ago. I hope that uh, it's not just a blip. I hope it really reaches people's hearts and people see that we just can't keep doing this and can't keep proliferating it.
0: Brian, I'm sure that the Shoshone people have talked to you about the impact of the desecration of their land.
8: Yes, and it's, it's some of the holiest parts of their land. And on the, the test site is Yucca Mountain. There's a constant fight going on. The, the U.S. Department of Energy wants to um, they have hollowed out a big part of the mountain. and They want it to be, be like the repository of all the nuclear waste in the country to, to go there. And uh, there's a lot of nuclear waste there, but this this has not been able to come about. Very sacred place. You know, when we go there, we, we, we go with their leadership. Each of us pays $10 a year for a permit to be on their land. And very often we get arrested for trespassing on, on their land, but we are the ones with permission to be there, and the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy doesn't. So there's a piece of this too that with, with the, the the nuclear test site is part of the National Nuclear Security Administration, which has like a $21 billion a year budget. It also has near Kansas City. It has a factory that makes the the, the 80 some percent of the non-nuclear parts of all the nuclear weapons, and it's something that 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 is not well known to the American taxpayer is. Everything nuclear under the nuclear you know, the nuclear test site and all the research and development the production of, of nuclear bombs the production of the of, of the plutonium pits the whole range uh is not under under the the military budget it's not out of the department of defense it's out of the department of energy uh so billions of dollars being spent you know trillions of dollars planned for the next few years to to uh, you know, renovate our new, our whole nuclear weapons arsenal. And that's out of the Department of Energy. And at this time when uh, climate change is so, you know, the, the dangers are so imminent and the warnings are so clear, I think most American people don't realize that such a huge share of the Department of Energy is being spent on making weapons of mass destruction. I think of all the expertise all the the engineers and physicists and uh, all the all this work and genius being put into making more efficient nuclear weapons at a time when that could be used to work on energy sources on conservation uh we have urgent work to do and it's not being done and this war in ukraine is actually setting everything Actually any anything we might think of on this planet for social betterment is being is being set back by this.
0: You've written about the war in Ukraine and talking about what's happening today and you've gone back to a precedent in April nineteen forty one. Can you explain that? That was when uh, Germany invaded the Soviet Union, you
8: know, starting with with Ukraine. During World War II, it was before the United States was formally involved. And uh, Harry S. Truman, by the time, was a senator from, from Missouri and not a very well-known guy, was as a United States senator from Missouri. spoke from the floor of the United States Senate, and he said, if the Germans are winning, we have to help the Russians, and if the Russians are winning, we have to help, help the Germans, and that way they can kill off as many of each other as possible. He wasn't considered a cynic at the time. In fact, when he died in the 70s, the uh, New York Times obituary for, for Truman was that this is what got him to be president. This is the kind of thing that got him to be president of the United States. It, you know, it caught his notice. So, so a few years later, he was made vice president of the United States. And when Franklin Roosevelt died, uh, Harry Truman became the president of the United States and the one who you know, demanded that, from Germany and um, from Japan. Um, some historians say prolonging the war by months at least and leading to the deaths of many hundreds of thousands more people before even before he ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But this was to show what a hard nosed pragmatic man he was when he said we could just slap just and kill each other off. And I really think that this is This is the U.S. foreign policy It has not changed very much, as horrible as as the war in Ukraine is and how unjustified Russia's attack on that country. I I think it's a crime that that, that is on the same scale as the United States invasion of Iraq. And I think it's as horrible as what, what, what the United States did to Libya just a few years ago, you know, to be condemned. But I don't think the United States, uh, is really acting now in the, in the interests of the people of Ukraine and in the interest of peace. The weapons manufacturers, uh, Raytheon Technologies, uh, Boeing, their stock is going through the roof. This is, this is great time to, be, to have money in, in armaments. It's very disturbing that, that we have both sides are talking about the possibility of using nuclear weapons. Vladimir Putin said that the United States doesn't understand how serious the threat is from Russia. I would say I think, I think the same thing is true on the other side. And, and, and I think that's what makes this war different from the other wars that I mentioned is, for one thing, is it's a war happening in Europe, and it's a war happening to people who are white is a very serious difference with how, how it's being treated, how it's being perceived. And also this is the this is the first time that the early nineteen sixties where there seems to be we're, we're heading toward a um direct conflict between the two nuclear two nuclear powers. So the times are are, are really very, very frightening.
0: You believe that the United States through NATO is trying to bleed Russia dry. Is that how you see it? That was something that in
8: an article I wrote, I pointed out that some months ago, the LA Times had an expose of CIA documents that that used those words from back in the 1950s. The United States CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, was funding and training, arming Ukrainian nationalists in the Soviet Union then. Ukrainian soldiers, fighters, believed that the CIA was helping them to become free of Soviet and Russian control. And the documents now show that that was never in the cards. The real intent was not to free Ukraine from Russian control, but to believe it, as the words you use there, to weaken uh, the Soviet Union. And I think it's that same kind of cynicism that was played out in in the Afghan war, we're still seeing the effects of that. You know, Back in 1979, the Carter administration, you know, later members of that administration were bragging that they brought about the fall of the Soviet Union by enticing, by arming the Afghan Mujahideen, the the people that later became both the Taliban and, and al-Qaeda, to fight the Russians and to lure the Russians into a trap. You know, uh, generations of war later. You know, because of this, and there wasn 't ever any real concern for the people people of Afghanistan any more than we're seeing it for the people of Ukraine. This is a market for missiles you know the Raytheon company and pulling in money just taking money the the taxpayers of the u s and taxpayers of of Western Europe are all pouring money into, into mostly u s based armaments corporations you know that's more the point of it than than you know, helping any people become free of, of, you know, foreign domination. And NATO is, you know, we've talked about this before, and I'm planning on in July going back to, to Germany and participating in protests at NATO, you know, foreign bases that have U.S. nuclear weapons in the US and Germany and, and Netherlands. There are five countries that have nuclear weapons. People don't understand in the, in the United States about what's going on in, in Europe and the threat of nato is you have from these bases not only these five nuclear sharing bases but france has their own nuclear weapons the uk has their nuclear weapons and then there's american uh u.s bases that have u.s weapons as well when i was there in in, in netherlands in october there were all the nato countries who were engaging in what they're calling operation steadfast noon which was a huge mobilization, an exercise of practicing attacking Russia. Soldiers were on the ground, and jets were in the air, and it was all like a dress rehearsal for an attack. And at these bases, like, uh, in Germany and in and, and the Netherlands, every day, every day, these uh, 16 fighter bombers take off, off off the ground for the purpose of practicing to deliver nuclear weapons to Russia, delivered word they use. Wow, though so it were a gift. But of course, Russia isn't going to tolerate that. It's not a tolerable situation. You know, the, the sanity or cruelty of Vladimir Putin aside, everybody knew this back in the 1990s. Even uh, I believe it was 1998 that Senator Joseph Biden addressed it was televised. And you can see it on YouTube where he says that if NATO expands you know, closer to Russia he said this would be the tipping point could lead to a a violent and terrible reaction uh George Kennan who was the US ambassador to the Soviet Union and one of the big you know architects of post world war 2 foreign policy in Europe he warned in 1998 he when when NATO started to to expand toward Russia he said this is and this is going to lead to World War III, and he said there's no reason for it. There's no provocation. Because all of this was before Putin was deputy mayor of Leningrad and had to, and uh, said he had to moonlight as a cab driver. He was not somebody in power at the time at all. So it isn't, it isn't personality driven. It's, it's everybody knew. Senator Joe Biden knew that if NATO expands, there's going to be trouble with Russia. And NATO expanded, and that does not, in no way, justify anything that, that Putin is doing. But it, it, it does give an explanation to it, and it does show that uh, you know that there 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 is provocation. And now the talk is now Finland and Sweden want to join, are talking about joining NATO. There's talk about basing nuclear missiles, nuclear bombs. In Poland, you know, what we need to do is, as every country needs to be neutral, but especially, you know, go back to the plan in the 1990s when the Soviet Union fell. Everybody knew there was total agreement that a um, buffer of neutral states between the you know, the NATO countries between the Western Europe alliances and and Russia was absolutely necessary for the peace of the world and the peace of the people of those countries, of people of Russia and of Ukraine, Poland, to have a lot less pressure and a lot less ramp down the threats. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know Vladimir Putin. I don't know how much of it this is is propaganda and stuff. But if, if the story that we're told, if we're told that this is, if it's true that, that this is megalomatic despot who has, you know, sociopathic and all of, all of all the worst things people say are true is is you don't put that person in a no-win situation. You don't back anyone against the wall. This is not diplomacy. You don't put anybody in a position, you know, where there there isn't an out. And when the United States Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who also uh not only is he a retired U.S. Army general, but he took a vacation from being on the board of directors and right beyond technology so he could take the spot as U.S. cabinet member in charge of defense. Said a few days ago that, you know, the, the most important thing now is for the United States to weaken, you know, to, I don't know the exact words he used, but to destroy Russia as a military power. As much as I'd like to see Russia not be a nuclear, you know, be a, be a military power. I don't want the United States to be either. And for the United States to say that is a provocation. And I, and I really hope for the sake of the planet that Vladimir Putin is more sane than what <laughs> she's given credit for, because this is the kind of pressure that could push almost anybody over, over the edge to act in irresponsible and reckless ways.
0: Thank you so much for all that today and good luck with your new job.
8: Thank you very much.
0: Tireless worker for peace and anti-war, Brian
3: Terrell. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information,
0: go to allthews.3cr.org.au.